probability that one or more team members may be infected by intruder organism. 75%. If intruder organism reaches civilized areas, entire world population infected 27,000 hours from first contact. Welcome back to the Thing Minute podcast, where we discuss John Carpenter's 1982 science fiction horror masterpiece, The Thing, one minute at a time. I'm Harper W. Harris from HarperWHarris.com, and joining me for his last day is... I'm Alan Sanders, and if you want to learn a little bit more about me in radio, film, whatever, I've got a public Facebook page, The Alan Sanders Show. You can also follow me on Twitter, Alan J. Sanders. Awesome. Thanks for rounding out the week with us, Alan. Oh, it's been fantastic. This has been awesome. Yeah, it's been really fun. So today we are talking about Minute 40 of The Thing, which begins with uh, Mac and Norris walking out onto the UFO and then ends a minute later with, uh, with Mac Norris and Palmer walking over to the empty grave out on the snow, uh, the mysterious blue grave. This, is, uh, this continues this kind of UFO segment of the movie, and so the beginning here has them kind of walking out onto it, and then we get our only piece of dialogue here about the UFO. So... This is it's interesting to note we talked a lot yesterday about the the matte painting aspect of it but this uh even when they're up close the only thing that's not a matte painting is just that open kind of porthole that they're standing next to but everything else again is uh is a painting except for I think the I guess the guy standing in the background that part was not matted either but the rest of the UFO is a painting which is Again, pretty incredible. <laughs> yeah, now I, I can't tell when they first walk up, right about the 10-second mark, if that's still part of the painting because I know later when they do the uh, a close-up more on, their, on, the, on that door, it matches so perfectly. I can't tell if the prior shot at the very beginning of this minute is still part of the painting or when we get to about the 36, 35-second mark and we see it up close in the foreground where it's obviously real because you can now sense the metal, the, the, the texture, the snow blending to help us give us a sense like, okay, that's the real portal, that's the real hatch, whatever. Um, it still it blends so well, it tricks you. Even if, it is the, if, it's, if it's the matte painting earlier or not, it doesn't matter. It all still works. Yeah, it's, it's true, it's, and it is hard to tell. I'm l- looking at that kind of moment about 10 seconds in, and if I had to guess, I'd say since they built that, that prop of that hatch, it looks like the door of the hatch might be actually real in the frame, but then maybe the bottom part of it is still part of the painting, but it's really hard to tell, which is just right. another, another testament to how, how cleverly this was. Um, the Albert Whitlock painted it, but then also the way they framed it and, and placed it in too is just, you know, I, I would have never guessed. <laughs> and, you know, that may be the case because if you look at the f- extreme foreground of the hatch, you can almost sense when you when you freeze frame it and you force your eye to just stare, you can almost sense that just the hair shading difference in the lighting on the metal of the base versus the metal of the lid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does look slightly different. But yeah, again, we get another, this this time we get a really up close shot of, of the matte painting while the, the sun kind of, the cloud cover changes and we see that shadow across it, which again, is pretty, pretty amazing. And this, this time we see a lot of detail of that texture of the ship. And is, uh, I almost had to wonder if, if Whitlock did two versions of this painting, one with one that where it's all kind of covered in shadow and one where it's in light. Cause otherwise I'm not sure how they got that detail to come out. It looks totally real. 
I don't know. But I will tell you one of the things is it does, again, visually tell us something that we see normally in, on stage, the idea of the spotlight. You know, we're, we're, we're learning more information. When we first land uh, yesterday when we talked about this, the overhead shot, the wide shot from behind the three actors, we see the light open up as if like, oh, the, the bright light of awareness. Now we're coming up on the on the hatch and once again, we're so close. It's like they do this again, this reveal of, hey, we're going to spotlight what's going on here. It's a, it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's subtle. It's a visual thing, but it's sort of that theatrical shining light on the problem. Yeah, de- that's definitely true. It's, it is, it kind of adds a more literal sense to the reveal that it's actually, the light is actually kind of gradually shining on what they're looking at. So on top of kind of giving a sense of realism and scale, it also, you know, adds to that. It forces you to look in certain places too and, and view it the same way that the characters are, which is pretty pretty smart. This this conversation that they have here out on the UFO is one of the uh one of the moments that kind of defines what's going on here and, and finally connects back to the beginning of the movie so you finally understand exactly what that was and what you were seeing and, and when it was, most importantly. Norris says it's the because of the backscatter effect, uh, things have been coming up through the ice, and that he guesses this has uh, been here for a hundred, at least a hundred thousand years. So we finally know that the the UFO in the very beginning of the movie that that crash was happening a long, long time ago. It was you know it's I love that opening of the movie because it is so kind of odd and that you don't you have no idea how it connects to the rest of the movie for a for a pretty long time. You know, we're, we're 40 minutes into the movie and now we're just kind of making that connection uh, officially. Yeah. And one of the things I also like, whether it works or not in in science, in terms of science fiction, that there was this being trapped in some kind of cryogenic sleep or some kind of state of pr- preservation in the ice having been frozen that once allowed to thaw came back to life. And it begs the question how many other things are out there that might be buried or how many other things from other worlds? Who knows, right? I mean, because the idea that this could have been sitting here for 100,000 years, a lot can happen in that time frame. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a classic kind of sci-fi trope. It, you know, uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey does kind of the same thing with the monolith that's on the moon. Like, it, it had been there for eons until we found it. And yeah, it's it's one of those classic sci-fi things where it, it definitely makes you wonder about what else is out there. <laughs> it, it also adds in the immediacy of this story, the idea that, okay, something survived 100,000 years. Did you really kill what you thought you killed? If, if, yeah. if, if, ice, if ice didn't kill it, how do you know fire killed it? Yeah, that's a great point. That yeah, it, it gives you a sense of how old and how hardy this thing is. That yeah, that that uh, what just happened, especially given the sense that we're away from the base now, it almost gives a sense of like, what are they going to find when they get back? <laughs> exactly, because we've we've come we've completely lost touch with what's happening back at the base. Don't forget, they've got the bodies they brought back that they mm-hmm. they've done the autopsy on. They've got the dogs that they've looked at. They've obviously drawn blood when we started this earlier this week. The very first thing we looked at was they were, you know, looking at one of the other dogs that survived the initial, you know, alien attack, if you will. So now all of a sudden, is there a rush to get back? Because what, you know, what's going on back there? Yeah, I mean, now now they really get a, a, a sense of what this creature might actually be. Whereas, you know, you almost could, until you know that it's this whole alien thing, you might think that it's just some kind of undiscovered animal you know, that lived in the Antarctic. And now that people are there, they discovered it or something like that. But now that you know, it's, it's alien and that it's survived for this long, you know, the, the sense of kind of otherness and, and how scary the actual creature is, is definitely amped up because of what they discover here. 
Now, one of the things that I, I it's not a complaint necessarily. Mm-hmm. I get it from a, a visual perspective. It looks kind of impressive. I hate that the block of ice is so far away from the crash site because you see it way in the background. Because I get the idea this alien being lands here, crawls out, tries to maybe get somewhere. Uh, maybe doesn't have a shape or a form that would allow it to survive in this kind of a harsh environment, collapses and is buried. It just feels like, how did they find this one particular spot? There's no other spots where they were digging, no other little seismic areas where they may have stumbled. It's just like, oh, look, a perfect square where there must be a man hidden. <laughs> yeah, I mean, looking at it kind of logically, you're, you're right. It does. I, I have thought about how far away it is, but also just the idea that like um, – well, I guess it shouldn't be that cl- close. You know, the hole's not that deep either. Like, it should be about the same level as the UFO, you'd think. And it doesn't necessarily seem like it's at the right... Like, if the UFO crashed, this is kind of like towards the back side of the UFO. Like, if, if he was thrown out of it or something, like, you'd think he'd be, you know, in, in the other direction. But, yeah, it is kind of... it's It stretches the imagination, even though it, from a visual standpoint, that just kind of... That lone hole out in the middle of nowhere does... It's a great visual shot, but... Yeah, logically, it doesn't make a ton of sense necessarily. <laughs> and, and by the way, this is one of those only moments where if you go sort of frame by frame, you can see the diagonal line where both McCready and Norris are coming back to meet uh, Palmer at the at the hole. You can see where the foot is, especially on Norris's left foot, it's not oh, yeah. going into snow. You can see it's being obscured by a diagonal line where the matte paint fits in. Yeah, you're right. I never, I never noticed it looking that closely, but there are some great shots. I'll have to see if I can find them again so I can post them with this episode, but uh, of them filming this because it's like, it's out on some lot in, in uh, LA and all you, it's just the hole and then this like white uh, carpet that they laid right. out. And then all around them, it's just, it's like, you know, 98 degrees in LA and there's all these, there's grass and studio buildings. <laughs> it's, it, it looks really kind of funny. And then the rest of this is just either, previously shot and they added into it like i think the hell it looks like the helicopter is real just that it was matted in from a different shot but uh yeah the hole with the ufo and, and all that snow around them is just all painting it, and but it works when you're watching it even full screen unless you really now that i've drawn your attention you're gonna always see wow it looks <laughs> yeah, like there's thanks alan <laughs> <laughs> hey you know i said it was a it was a masterpiece in its own right but there's there's still flaws <laughs> Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great effect, and yeah, uh, outside of looking at it really, really closely at their footsteps, you would, I, you know, I always assumed this was actually out in the snow, and they just shot this. Like I would have never guessed that. Exactly, but it goes again to until we point it out, and you just know if you force yourself to look at it, then you say, okay, now I see how well that matte painting uh, te- technique works, and how for the longest time, until you showed me the one little slight possible error, if you want to call it that. I would have never known that they weren't there. Yeah. Well, and that, that shot works so well, too, because it is, it's such an incredibly wide shot, too. Like, I imagine when they, they shot it out on that lot, they were probably up on the, on the rooftop of one of the studios shooting down at them. Um, but it, it gives you a sense of scale of where everything is, but it also adds to that isolation of everything. And everything's just so white. There, you can't even tell, get really a sense of distance or, or, or any kind of landscape because it's just pure white around them, except for this hole and the, the UFO crash site around them. You know, and, I, and this goes back to the time that John Carpenter had to storyboard and really do some pre-production. A shot like this to mat it, 
you needed to know the exact angles that you were going to be shooting for each moment in this scene to make it work. And, mm-hmm. and, and that just goes to show the, the importance of, of things like storyboarding and really having a, a true concept of each shot that you're going to have in this, in this storytelling. Yeah, most definitely. It's, it's, it's very pre-planned out and, and, you know, you get a sense that the pacing too is, is very deliberate. Um, we get another one of those, those wide out fades between them out on the UFO to them walking over to the grave site. And just again, kind of adds to that mystery and suspense to it. I think it, it, it works perfectly. And, and speaking of mystery, I think it, it probably bothered me the first time I watched it. I don't really think about it now, but I remember thinking, uh, why did they not try and go in the UFO? Like they're standing right next to the door and we don't get to see anything inside of it. <laughs> I do remember that as a kid saying they're not going to go inside. They just decide or are we supposed to imagine they went inside, didn't see anything and they come back out? I, I, you, you sort of just overlook it until you go back and think it through. But it is interesting that they never did. Yeah, and, and my only guess, uh, the only way I've been able to kind of think about it is that, because um, it's not in the script either, I don't think, that they go in in any way, but is that there probably wasn't a door. They probably weren't really thinking that they'd be standing right next to a door, but they had to have something that gave them a sense of standing in front of it, and maybe that was just the only thing they could think of that would be sticking out from the top of it, you know, like instead of some an antenna or a fin or something like that. I guess that was that was the only kind of object they could they could put in the foreground. But yeah, it definitely makes you wonder like why would they not like you know, or even show that the door is destroyed in a way that they can't get in or something. You know, it, I remember being like it kind of drove me a little crazy the first time I saw it as <laughs> when I was younger. Yeah, and then I look back as a, as an adult now and say, "Oh, budget. Okay, I got it." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but you you know, you could also you could say it adds to the mystery, but yeah, it's totally a budget thing. <laughs> but uh yeah, and, and this scene too while they're standing out on the UFO, this would be a good point to bring up the original movie because this is uh, this is probably the only part of the movie that really connects with the thing from another world, the original Howard Hawks movie. The UFO is about the only thing those these two movies have in common. So yeah, them them standing out on it, it is almost like they're seeing the aftermath of what happened in, in that movie where they immediately they decide to use the thermite charges to try and get into it because the metal is some kind of alloy they've never seen before, but they accidentally just destroy it and like that's the end of it. It's like a very, very quick like, oh, wow, we discovered a, a, a UFO. Oh, whoops, we blew it up and that's it. <laughs> Oh, isn't that so typical? Hey, we found something from that that's new and different, and let's destroy it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it reminded me. I actually read the novella a, a while ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I stumbled across it in part of a collection of sci-fi short stories, but they called the collection "Who Goes There," which is actually the name of the novella by John Campbell. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I read it, I was like, "Oh, this sounds like the thing," <laughs> not knowing that they had renamed. Oh wow, it. that's funny. Because <laughs> I was like, eh, "It seems real similar," but. <laughs> And then I'm like, oh, my God, this was written in 1938 and realized, OK, oh, this is the source material. And now, having become a fan of not only the original thing, but also of, of John Carpenter's, which we're talking about, the thing from 1982, I love the fact that John Carpenter consciously said, I want to go back to the source material. I want to go back, take this novella apart and 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 try to tell a different version of the thing. I don't want to do a retelling of the uh the one that came out prior that he saw as a kid, but to try to you know tell the new story of the thing. And I think that worked really well because I remember him saying in, in one of the behind the scenes somewhere was he said, every monster movie I ever saw, what bothered me is it was it always broke down to a man in a suit. It didn't yep. matter how cool the suit looked. It was still a man in a suit. And I always wanted to do something to tell a story where it's not a man in a suit. And 
I think you you can argue very very strongly that this movie is not a man in a suit. <laughs> no, it's it's about as far from that as you can get. The the creatures are about as inhuman as you could possibly imagine. I think. You know the thing I liked about it, and and again I know we're, we're sort of moving away and talking about the broader movie. Hmm. I love the fact that these alien creatures that it starts to morph into weren't so like silly or fantastical. It wasn't like the men in black kind of version of aliens. You got the sense of wildlife, of creatures like spiders or like you know, large three-toed animals or, or beings that could survive in very different atmospheres. They seemed more realistic in other worlds than fanciful. Does that make sense? Oh, definitely. Yeah, it's it's very it, it it's very against the kind of idea of kind of the the look of like fantasy sci-fi at the time where the aliens are all they'll either look like people but with small changes like, you know, most of the Star Treks and something like uh, most of the Star Treks, most of the aliens in like Star Trek is what I meant to say. Mm-hmm. You know, but they're they're very kind of imaginative and and kind of out there in a way that it's it's like taking the idea of um, you know, when scientists and, and futurists and stuff imagine what life on other planets might be like, you have to kind of get out of your own head about like, well, of course they must look like humans because this is the only way like living intelligent beings can look, right? But yeah, so for them to make it a creature that's just totally out there and, and uh, this combination of all kinds of different insects and, and body parts and things is probably more accurate for one, but it's, it's, a, it's, it's much more interesting too. Well, and it also, it blows me away to think of this idea that could it, once it absorbs the genetic coding of another living creature, that it can store it and then morph and turn into that? And then we're, we're reminded, no matter how gross or bloody some of the transition effects, we have to always remind ourselves it looked just like the dog at the beginning. That once it finishes the mm-hmm. transformation, it may be gross and bloody and disgusting morphing and turning and changing. But once it completes, if it's not interrupted, which of course half the time in this movie we're coming into it as it's in the middle of, of the, the change. Right. It looks exactly like what it wants to turn into. That becomes the scary part. That if you didn't stumble across it in the midst of absorbing or morphing or changing, that you don't know who the thing is. Who is it? Right. And – that's what that's what keeps you going. Then the rest of the movie is, you know, we've gotten lucky so far. But what if what if we're missing something? You know, what if what if it's not in the middle of a change and someone else is it? And now we start. Now we're questioning ourselves. The rest of the movie. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's that's one of the things that again makes this uh, this movie stand the test of time is that the monsters, as as awesome as they are, and, and as that's you know as much as that's what most people talk about when they talk about this movie. That's not really what makes this movie scary. What makes this movie scary is the the regular looking people that you have no idea their intentions, and it, it just gonna it's this Cold War paranoia and um, just this sense of like you don't know what what your neighbor might be up to is uh, comes through, and that's what really makes this movie frightening. And, and that goes all the way back to that that uh, that novella, that original novella. That's you know that, that as close as this is to to the novella. The novella obviously doesn't have any of the kind of you know, gory moments, but it, the same kind of fear of of who who's who. Obviously, with the name of the story being "Who Goes There," comes through. And you know, I, I, and I know it'll be coming up uh, much later in these series of, of 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 podcasts. But then, when you go back and you look at the fact that the blood supply was taken, then you say to yourself, watching it again and again. How many different people's blood could it have absorbed and then turned into? Whether it was people 
there? Was it other people's blood supply? The fact that it got into it, that it could then at that point turn into anybody. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you really start breaking it down, it's like you think you can follow a straight line of like, okay, well, at this point it touches Bennings. So Bennings is possibly infected. And at this point, you know, he's alone in a room with him and that kind of thing. But then once you start watching it, there's all these places where it's like, okay, it could totally have literally infected and become any single person on this at this camp. There's no way to possibly, possibly know it. Yeah, there's there's little moments like that, the blood packs being one of the big ones for sure, where, you know, it really kind of throws any theories you might have out the window. <laughs> and, and I think, and again, as you go along and discuss it, but since this is my last day to be able to talk about it, mm-hmm. I think, as always, we talked about Kurt Russell's character sort of being the guy that's trying to take control, that there's got to be a solution, there's got to be an answer. And it seems like every time they learn something... To, they realize, okay, we don't know enough and it keeps getting bigger and worse. And at this point we realize now it could be anybody. And he even realizes it when he knows that to do the test later to check everyone's blood, you know, that it could be anybody. And it's grown much like the creature grows and morphs and shifts. The problem has grown and shifted to beyond anyone's control, which brings me back to what I said, I think earlier this week, I'm glad they didn't do the Hollywood ending because the only way you can contain this problem is no one can survive. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, um, like you mentioned that this is your last day. I've been asking everybody on their last day of the podcast who, who you think might be infected at this point in the movie. And it, it sounds like you kind of think it, it literally could be anybody that there's almost no way to tell. <laughs> and obviously some are not because, you know, later when, uh, when um, uh, Richard Mazur's character gets shot, they do a test on him. And he was never infected to begin with, and yet he was the first person to come in contact with the dog. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's the the guessing game. And and as they reveal and they learn, I love the fact again. I said this yesterday: the immediacy that we feel like we're learning as fast as the characters are learning, and we realize there's no way to know everything. Yeah, it's it's just again that sense of vagueness and mystery, and like that in the end you have to kind of give up. That just like them, there's just no way to know. And, you know, the the whole sense of that there is no way to know what's going on in another person's head or who somebody really is, is I think kind of the the idea that Carpenter's trying to put forth in here. And and just how scary that idea actually is that, you know, as as well as you think you might know somebody, you you never know what's actually going on in their heads. And that's a frightening idea, Um, you know, and it's put in, in terms of, you know, a scary, alien, gory monster in this movie. But it's done in such an intelligent way that, you know, it really sells that that concept. No, and the allegory really that exists behind the scenes, if you want to get down into like a literary discussion, is do we ever know truly who anybody is inside? Right. How do you know what someone's thinking moment to moment, what they what, you know, pops in their head, whether, you know, did they have a sudden image of what would it be like to put an axe in someone's head and then it's gone. <laughs> but, you know, how do you ever really know somebody? Yeah. Yeah, and that's you know it's it's one of the things that it's talked about in philosophy a lot too, and it's it's a really scary idea because it's it's like if you if you kind of subscribe to that in a, in a really serious way, then it's you you don't know if you can ever really trust anybody or if you can ever feel safe because you have no idea. Like even somebody you've known for a long time, you know they they play with that later with uh, with Bennings when when Gary is like I've known him for for fifteen years or whatever he says. Mm-hmm. You know it's it's that's a very scary idea, and so to to kind of put that more kind of abstract concept in terms of kind of this classic sci-fi idea, but then combined with such a, another abstract idea of it not just being just an alien that's attacking people. It's an, the way that it uh, actually absorbs and becomes somebody else is, is just terrifying. 
Yeah, and since we started this week with Wilford Brimley, let me end with him because even he tries to play on the trust and the calmness later in the movie when he's in isolation and they go check on him and he's like, hey, I understand. I, I know why you guys have me out here, but I'm better now. I promise. And yet in the foreground, you see a noose hanging from the mm-hmm. ceiling. It's a great moment about the psychology of I'll say anything to get out of trouble. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's it's uh, yeah, this this movie's super fun to watch from from that perspective where you're just trying to kind of figure it out. And and obviously there are no there are no definitive answers, but it's uh, it's fun to kind of play that game as you go along and, and try to figure out who's who and what's going on and, and what their motivations are. And I think that's kind of the point, too. If you're if you're that engaged with it, then I think John Carpenter's done done what he achieved what he meant to accomplish. You know, one of my final thoughts on this as we as we close out, mm-hmm. most movies today that, hey, here's a cast of 12 because we need, a, we need enough people that we can pick off in gruesome and gross ways because it's a horror movie and they're just there to be fodder. This movie, although they slowly are being picked off, never feels like it's just doing it for the sake of having another body to pick off. Mm-hmm. You get a sense that these people are real. They're all unique. They have their own personalities. They've got their quirks. And I think part of that is we talked about before. They were filming in a live kind of hostile location in terms of the the environment and the weather. They banded together. And because of that, it feels so real. You feel bad each time somebody ends up dying. It doesn't feel like they were just there for the splatter effect or the gross effect that we really lost someone on the team. And you start feeling that heightened sense of we're losing people. We got to figure this out. And I think that's another thing that works with this movie. Yeah, I think you're right. And that, you know, it's kind of funny that, you know, John Carpenter, arguably with Halloween, kind of created the slasher genre where, you know, in most slasher movies, nobody gives a crap about any of the actual characters. You don't have very much investment into them. They are literally just fodder for the for the kills. But John Carpenter never plays his movies like that, especially here. You know, these guys are also differentiated and have different kind of personalities. And nobody on the on the cast is is an unlikable character. I I, I don't think they're all characters that you can identify with in one way or another and and who, you know, have their own little personality quirks and stuff so that when something bad does happen to them, it's really on top of it being horrifying. It's really kind of gut wrenching because you've been with these guys the entire time and and you've started to kind of identify with them. So it's definitely not a sense of just like, oh, let's just pick one of these guys and whoever, you know, any, mini miny mo will kill this guy off. Like it's, you know, it's very carefully crafted in that sense for sure. I like that. I like the way you said that carefully crafted, because even when people die in this, it either happens unexpectedly or while they're trying to do something heroic. It's not, oh, they're being stalked. Oh, they're being stalked. Oh, it's not that same. All right. You know, like you said, the slasher genre of just how many people are going to get hit with a with an axe or a knife or a chainsaw. It's they're trying to survive. They're trying to take care of each other. And yet this creature is like one step ahead of them. Yeah, most definitely. So, um, yeah, this is uh, this is the end of the week for uh, for you. So, any, any other um, cracks of the bat for the uh, for the movie? If you're stumbling across this, all I can say, first of all, Harper, thank you. I appreciate you inviting me, and yeah, I, I love love this movie. Obviously, you can tell I could talk about it a lot. I'm sure you've <laughs> you've run into other people who feel the same way. But anyone who stumbled across this the first time, t- give yourself the visual treat. Don't get it distracted. Put the phone down. Watch the movie start to finish. It's it's such a cool visual treat. It's it does have the gore effects, but these are all practical effects that still hold up. And I think you'll be surprised just how good this movie really is. 
Yeah, I, I 100% agree. It's a, it's actually, it's, it's been an issue for me how good this movie is, and that every time I sit down, when I was getting started, every time I sat down to watch it and take notes, I'd take notes for the first like 15 minutes, and then my notes would start to kind of trail off because <laughs> I'd be getting very invested in the movie, and I'd, I'd have a hard time focusing on like analyzing it because I'm just so into it. But yeah, so I, I 100% agree. It's, it's a movie that I would recommend watching without distraction, but it's a movie that I can't even. I can't watch and, and not get invested in. So uh, it's a sign of a classic. So, um, yeah, Alan, thank you so much for being on this week. It's been awesome. It's been really, really fun. Excellent. Again, thank you for asking me. It's been a, it's been a delight and a treat to be part of this. Cool. So that'll wrap up uh, Minute 40 and also this, uh, this week of the podcast. So if you do uh, like the show and want to support it, there's a couple ways you can do that. The easiest way to do it is to go to thethingminute.com slash Amazon. That'll take you directly to Amazon's page and you can shop just like you normally would. But anything you buy, the podcast gets a very small percentage of that cost at no extra cost to you. So um, that definitely helps us out. And you can also donate directly to the show using the donate button on the bottom of the website at thethingminute.com. Every little bit does help to cover hosting fees and website costs and stuff like that. So if anybody donates anything, we, we very much appreciate that. But anyways, thank you for listening so much. And I hope everybody has a great weekend. If you're still not taken over by The Thing by Monday, make sure to come back for another episode of The Thing Minute. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please go to thethingminute.com. There you'll find the show notes with links to anything we talked about on this episode and lots of other resources on The Thing. You can also find us on Twitter at The Thing Minute and on Facebook at facebook.com slash The Thing Minute. But most importantly, subscribe, rate, and review us in iTunes so you'll never miss an episode. Check out other podcasts like this at moviesbyminutes.com and be sure to head over to starwarsminute.com to listen to the team that started it all. Thanks for listening, and until next time, this is Harper signing out. Harper signing out.